Good morning, Soma Church. This is Brandon Shields here. Um, I'm the lead pastor at Soma Midtown. I want to welcome you to the teaching portion of our gathering this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll pick up kind of where we left off last week as we continue our series uh, on uh, kind of our vision for this year as a church and being a, a wholehearted community. So here are these words from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman sat, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Well, as I mentioned, we are continuing uh, this two-part series as we kick off our annual priority for the year, uh, Becoming a More Wholehearted Community. And uh, just to review last week, in case you missed it, um, this is kind of how we see transformation happening in, uh, in the scripture and, and kind of the ways that God works in, uh, in history through his people is this uh, triangle of transformation. I want to throw it back up on the screen because this is critical to understanding the role that community plays as an essential piece of our transformation. So if you remember the Holy Spirit, uh, God's empowering presence lives in us and he takes the truth or God's reality, his presence and his power and he applies it to our lives through um, his ongoing work of sanctification. And he does that um, by means of practices or habits that kind of help renew our bodies and our minds and our soul uh, and our actions and our attitudes uh, into the image of Christ. And then the context for all of that is uh, community. And we defined community last week, um, and you can go back and listen to that. Now, kind of a, a very specific way as the Bible lays out this, this wholehearted vision for a community that's kind of being knit together, uh, centering on Jesus. And so last week we looked at um, kind of the way we were created to experience community in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And we said that community is essential for transformation because we are created for community and from community, from uh, God who himself exists as an eternal community of love. And one of the things we mentioned last week was that this communion, this participation that we have in the life of God is the basis for robust community with others. Like the goal of community can never just be community. It's actually communion with God that then creates the foundation for real community with other people. And Genesis 2 kind of ends, the creation story ends with this vision for what we'll just call wholeness, right? This, the shalom, the, the flourishing of human beings. And it ends with some very interesting language. Genesis 2.25 after Adam and Eve are brought together, God says, it's not good for a man to be alone. I'm going to place him in a relational community. Um, and in this case, it's, it's marriage, a marriage relationship, a covenant relationship. He says this at the end of Genesis 2, the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed or they felt no shame. Now, this is the vision for wholeness for all community and all relationships. Um, there's joy here in the early chapters of Genesis. This idea of being naked or fully exposed um, but not ashamed, is this concept of vulnerability. And we'll circle back to this later on in our series this year. But this uh, vulnerability just simply means to be known all the way down to the bottom and to be loved. 
in the in the midst of that knowledge. So you see vulnerability, you see connection, you see creativity. Right? They're sent out with a cultural mandate to extend the blessing of God to the rest of the world. Now, I think it's 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 really key that we pay attention to this idea of shame because this is not just a random throwaway comment. Um, I think the, uh, Moses wants to draw our attention here to shame because shame is one of the organizing ideas that's going to be unpacked in Genesis chapter 3. Although it's not named, I think the reason he says it here is because it's kind of the primary emotional state that is going to be pivotal to the story of the fall of humankind. And so it's kind of the overture, shame here is the overture of uh, the next couple chapters of Genesis. And what I want us to just pay attention to here is that shame is going to be the primary tool that the evil one, the tempter, the Satan, uses to disrupt our most fundamental and intimate relationships with one another. And so we see at Genesis 3 the story of how division creeps into our relationships. So we're created for wholeness, we're naked and not ashamed, we're known and loved by one another and by God, and then shame begins to enter the picture here and create division. And, and I think that's important for us to see that this is an ancient problem, right? We, we feel division now. We feel scattered. We feel divided. We feel fragmented. And we kind of want to blame that on like the cultural moment we live in and the busyness and our technology and prosperity and transience and mobility and kind of these crises that are happening around us. And certainly they contribute to the, and maybe even exacerbate or amplify our feelings of division. But the reality is the story of division goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and the real culprit, the real enemy of communion with God and community with one another is shame. And so if we go back to this story again, I'm not going to do a deep dive because we will actually teach on this passage in depth um, later on in our series, but I want you to notice how shame gets in and begins to disrupt and disconnect our fundamental relationships because this pattern is the same pattern that we see played out uh, even today. And so notice that the serpent comes, this crafty serpent, this wise tempter. And he comes and begins to plant seeds of doubt. So I'm going to throw this pattern up on the screen. And this is a pattern that we'll come back to time and time again. And this is how shame works. Um, These dynamics are at play. Um, You can notice these in our individual relationships. You can notice this happening in groups. You can notice this happening in in nations. Um, But notice that it starts with doubt. Shame never happens alone. Shame never happens in isolation or outside the context of a relationship. There is an active work of the evil one to take shame and to use it to disrupt our relationships. And so what the serpent is doing here in saying, get, did God actually say, is he's creating self-doubt. He's, he's entering in here to doubt, not just um, the facts about what God said to Adam that then got repeated to Eve about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What he's actually doing is inviting her to doubt her relationship with God. He's inviting her to doubt herself and thus to doubt her relationship with God. And this begins the process of disruption and disconnection between her and God. That's what's really at stake here is her relationship. Shame is always about disrupting a relationship. And notice that she begins to make interpretations about reality. She begins to think and to judge and to analyze and discern apart from God rather than waiting for God who would have come strolling by, you know, maybe at any moment to clarify this this, uh, deception She begins to do this apart from God, and she kind of throws herself headlong rather than interdependence with God into independence from God. And this leads to a distortion and and a disintegration of even her memory. Notice like her ability to even recall the basic facts. She says uh, in response, God said, we could eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but he said, 
Um, not only could we not eat of it, you shall not touch it lest you die. And that's actually not what God said. And so we see that this discomfort that flows out of doubt begins to disintegrate her memory, her ability to recall accurately what God said, and, and begins to undermine her trust in God's words, God's reality. And that leads to then deception. And deception is the point at which shame uh, kind of gets uh, highlighted in this story. The evil one comes to uh, Eve and he says, um, it, God knows if you take of this fruit and you eat of this tree, you will be like God, which is a really interesting thing for him to say because the truth is they were already like God. They were already created in the image of God. But the other thing that he says, essentially what he's saying here is that not only will you be like God, but the, but the, the flip of that, he says, you will not die and you will be like God. The flip of that, I think what he's doing is playing on an emotional level with Eve. And what he's saying is, God doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't want to be close to you. God doesn't want to be connected with you. He doesn't want you to be intimate with him. God's holding out on you. He's withholding from you. He doesn't like you. He doesn't want to be close to you. In other words, this is the message of shame. You are not enough. You are not important. You are flawed. You are wrong. You are less than. And that lessening is kind of the space in which shame operates. And and shame, notice, is, is really subtle here. God doesn't, the serpent doesn't come to her and say, you are less than. He says, God doesn't want to be with you. God doesn't want to be for you. He questions. It's something that's subtle and something that's felt more than it's oftentimes said. Now, the difference between shame and guilt, which we'll see in just a moment, is, um, is, is subtle, but it's important. Shame says, I am bad or I am wrong. Guilt, which often stands on the shoulders of shame, says, I've done something bad or wrong. It's an understanding that I've, I've hurt someone or I've done something bad against another person or against God. Shame then, then kind of goes deeper and says, no, no, I am bad. I am wrong. I am flawed. And it's that combination there that then leads to disobedience, right? Where she turns her desire for a relationship toward, with God towards creation. And she, she turns her desire to be known and loved um, that, and that desire to satisfy her uh, itch for relationship, she turns um, away from God and towards creation, and she trades relationship for control. And this is the essence of sin, living from this diminished sense of our dignity as God's image bearers because of shame. We, we kind of reconstruct new narratives. Notice she looks out and she sees it's desirable, and she begins to say, ah, it's pleasing to the eyes. And it's, it's life-giving. See, life is not found in relationship with God. Life is going to be found in me controlling my environment, me um, determining for myself what brings about my own happiness and joy. And that eventually leads, we see later in the chapter, to distance and division, right? So shame gives way to guilt, and we see Adam and Eve covering themselves with fig leaves. Uh, we see fear begin to enter in. These are the three kind of primary enemies of community and communion, shame and guilt In fear, Adam says, I hid from you, God, because I was afraid, because I knew that I was naked, and he felt exposed. And rather than trusting God and being vulnerable, he chooses to hide, and Eve chooses to hide. And and it it kind of sets off and leads to these mistrusting patterns that we see play out in our own lives even today. They hide, right? They hide from one another. They hide from God. You could even argue they're hiding from uh, themselves and from the knowledge of what they've done. They begin to blame one another. They condemn and judge one another. Um, and then they ultimately isolate themselves. And this is how we often respond to shame. Shame causes us to relationally turn away, right? That's the sin here, 
It's not just the feeling of inadequacy. It's turning away from God instead of turning towards God. It's turning away from, from uh, one another instead of turning towards one another. And that's what we do. We either withdraw from one another in our shame, or you could see this in, in the rest of Genesis. Maybe we turn against one another, Cain and Abel, out of our shame, or we turn toward one another, but not in connection and vulnerability, but in appeasement and compromise. You see that in the life of Abraham, for instance, in that story with uh, some of the kings and how he treats his wife. And the result of all of that is widespread division, right? Divided hearts, divided relationships, divided communities, and divided societies. I mean, if you go on and read the rest of the book of Genesis, the, the shame that starts between the serpent and Eve, kind of on an internal level, gets multiplied out and extends out from individuals, Adam and Eve, to larger social systems um, in the rest of the book of Genesis. Kurt Thompson, who's written a great book on shame, uh, he's a Christian psychiatrist. Here's what he has to say about how shame goes from individual to viral levels. He says, shame can vary in its range from the most relationally subtle ways, the condescending glance or tone of voice from one spouse to another, to wholesale cultural movements that involve groups, communities, and eventually nations that war against nations. You see this in Genesis 34. What we do with shame on an individual level has potentially geometric consequences for any of the social systems we occupy, be that our family, our place of employment, the church, or the larger community. So this story of our first parents, what I want us to learn from this, is actually our story. This is not just a story of something that happened in a galaxy far, far away a long time ago. This is our story. The pattern of the evil one gets repeated over and over and over again throughout the biblical story and down through human history, even into our present moment. The enemy loves to leverage shame, to deceive, to divide, to disconnect, and to destroy our joyful, vulnerable communion with God and community with one another. And it happens and starts in our earliest relationships. I mean, as children, we learn shame before we can even process what's happening relationally. Neurobiologists tell us we are already encountering the dynamics of shame at a very early age. We are impacted by uh, our, our families, by our communities, by events that happen to us. Some of these good and some of these bad. And we learn to interpret these events in a certain kind of way, and then we respond out of those interpretations and perceptions um, emotionally and verbally and physically. And these internalized maps or interpretations and responses form what we might call implicit beliefs about ourselves and about God and about other people. And this is where shame kind of enters in, right? Shame is not always bad, right? Like there's a good kind of shame, a healthy shame. Shame can be helpful in helping us regulate harmful behaviors. It can alert us to our relational vulnerabilities or our limitations as human beings. But, but, shame is what the enemy uses to disrupt relationships. He uses our shame to lead us away from connection and into patterns of hiding, blaming, condemning, and isolating. And again, this, this starts in kind of our families of origin, right? The primary community that we're born into before we can even think, before we can even rationalize. This is happening to us on an emotional level, a felt level, before we even know how to articulate a sense of something being wrong with us. But then it also happens in our churches. It happens in our schools. It happens in our friendships. And, and the shame gets encoded into our brains, into our bodies, hardwired into literally like the neural networks and begins to disrupt and disintegrate. And it becomes this kind of unconscious script 
for how we relate to others. And then as we grow and as we mature and we move into our adult years, what happens is some of those early memories that we have of shame get activated as we enter into vulnerable relationships or not with other human beings. Um, and, and so I want to kind of give you like a list. I don't know what this looks like for you, but I just want you to pause right now and to take a moment to think about and reflect on, or maybe take some time this week to reflect on how shame shows up and how it does its work in disrupting your relationships. Uh, one of my favorite researchers here, social scientists, is a lady named Brene Brown. She had a TED Talk that went viral on shame a couple of years ago. And she calls this the shame armory, like all the different ways that we learn to respond in, uh, in ways because we feel less than, because we don't feel worthy, we operate out of these shame scripts. And so I'm going to put up on the screen here a list of some of these ways that we, um, we armor up. She talks about this idea of armoring up and protecting our hearts because of fear or shame or guilt or whatever it is. And so I want you to kind of look at this list. And I want you to t- just kind of pause and ask, like, which of these is true of me? Let's, let's do a little shame inventory this week. How does shame show up in your relationship. She said the top three ways that it typically shows up for most people is perfectionism, right? Like I've got to be and do the right things because I, I don't want to be seen as a failure. Um, it, it's also uh, kind of this idea of not being able to enjoy life, um, foreboding joy is what she calls it, working from a scarcity mentality, numbing or hiding, right? You can look at this list and she's, you know, kind of refined this list over many, many, many years. But I just want us to take some time this week to ask the question, how does shame show up in my relationships? Think about your relationship with your spouse. Think about your relationship with your children. Think about your relationship with your family of origin. Think about your relationship with your roommates. Does shame show up in some of these behaviors? Maybe it's not necessarily a behavior, but it's also like sensations that you feel in your body, sweaty palms, tightness in your chest, anxiety, your pulse begins to race. Like you are experiencing shame all of the time in different ways. Um, maybe it's images that come to mind or a certain feeling or a thought pattern. You get stuck in ruminating on something. I want to encourage you to get a, get a three-by-five card this week or, or use the notes, apps, notes app on your phone. And I want you just to notice when shame is happening, when you sense shame being activated throughout your day. And I want to encourage you, don't analyze it. Don't try to judge it. Just become aware of when you're operating from a place of shame, when, you feel, when you're feeling triggered, when you're feeling reactive, and something happens to you or a certain person enters the room and you notice your emotional, emotional state begin to shift, right? We can't tame uh, shame, so to speak, unless we start to name it. And as we name it, it begins to shift our attention, making us more aware of it. And now we can, we can do something about it. We can bring it before the Lord in prayer. And so maybe that's just some time for self-reflection, or maybe you have some close friends that you trust, and you can sit down this week and you can begin to ask the question, how do you experience in me? Where do you experience in me exhibiting these behaviors? For me, I know um, the primary way that shame shows up for me is defensiveness. I tend to detach and want to withdraw when I get into high-stress environments, and that happens in my marriage, that happens with my children, that happens uh, with my elder team, that happens uh, with our staff at times. And I notice that when I am feeling ashamed, when I'm feeling that sense of I'm not enough, I am bad, I am wrong, I'm less than, I begin to pull back, I begin to get defensive and try to defend myself against those feelings. And it's hard to sit in that and tolerate that. And so often I'll just hit the eject button and I'll try to move around people or move around relationships or move around groups. Um, Shame looks differently for all of us, but we need to become more aware of how those patterns are operating in our lives because it can disrupt our relationships. Now, the good news uh, of Jesus is that shame and guilt and fear and sin 
don't have the final word in God's story. From the beginning, God is committed to delivering us, from, to healing us, restoring us back to a place of wholeness. He begins right there in Genesis chapter 3 when he comes looking for Adam and Eve, knowing full well what they've already done. God asks them a question. Notice God doesn't come with a condemnation. He doesn't come with judgment. Um, first, what he says is this simple question, where are you? And this is not like a geographical question as if God needs a GPS to literally like locate them in the Garden of Eden. This is a relational question. God is being curious here. He's exercising compassion. He's seeking reconciliation and connection and the rebuilding of the trust that's been broken because of Adam and Eve's sin. He's inviting them into vulnerability once again. I want to know you. I want to love you. I want you to draw near to me, not run away from me. And this is what, what God is doing in uh, salvation. He's healing our divided hearts through communion with him and community with other people. He's a God that when we feel shame doesn't leave us, doesn't abandon us, which is really our fundamental fear when it comes to shame, right? We're afraid of somebody rejecting us, somebody leaving us, but God draws near. He's a covenant God. He stays. He covers their nakedness with uh, animal skin. We see kind of a foreshadowing there of the atoning work of Jesus. And God goes about this project of reweaving the fabric of our hearts, reweaving the fabric of our relationships, healing us of shame and sin and fear and guilt. And the rest of the, the, the Bible is a story of this recovery of wholeness. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 6 when God establishes his first community. Um, this is the prayer that a Jewish person would pray every morning and every evening, the Shema. God says this, he establishes kind of the organizing principle for his community of faith as this. He says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's oneness, not division, is going to be central to this community. Love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. The heart in the Hebrew imagination is the word lev in the Hebrew. It's the executive center of our body, not just the physical organ that pumps blood out to our arteries and veins, but the center of our thoughts, our feelings, our imagination, our desires, and our memories. And what God is saying, I want you to become wholehearted. I want you to experience wholeness all through your body. I want my love to be the thing that you organize around. And as you organize around that love in our communion, then he begins to give instructions about how we love our neighbor as God is loving us with a whole and integrated heart. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. It's about showing us what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourselves. You could see the words whole and holy, which is a key word in the book of Leviticus, actually meaning the same thing. To be whole is to be holy. To be holy is to be whole. And that's what we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. There's this longing for the restoration of wholeness, of integration, of this love that God brings to his people. But there's also still this splitness, this reality that we live in a broken world, that we're not quite whole, that we're still disconnected and we're still disintegrated and we still experience hostility. I love the way that St. Gregory of Nyssa, an early church father, says it. He says, our godlike beauty is hidden under curtains of shame. That's the division of the human heart in our relationships that we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Psalm 86, the psalmist longs for this wholeness. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God. With my whole heart, I will glorify your name forever. David, the psalmist, after he sins with Bathsheba, uh, in writing the psalm, after he sins with Bathsheba, says, created me an undivided or a pure heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. 
The prophet Ezekiel uh, makes this promise from God about the future of Israel uh, as they experience exile. He says, I will give them uh, one heart and a new spirit I will put within them, and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. All of these promises of wholeness, of wholeheartedness, become a drumbeat that culminate in the life and the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes teaching and embodying this same vision of wholeness and wholehearted love, of communion with God and community with others. And he comes to restore that and make it possible for us to experience what Israel failed to do and got a foretaste of, but failed to fully enter into. Jesus comes now and gives to his people. He starts with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He says, be whole or be perfect. It's the same word there. As your Father in heaven is whole. He says in Mark 12, in response to the great, what is the, what is the greatest commandment of all? He takes all of uh, the Torah and he sums it up with these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Deuteronomy 6, recapitulated there. And love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. These are interrelated. They're interdependent. Loving God means we love our neighbor, and loving our neighbor requires us to continue to lean into the love of God and helps us love God practically. John chapter 13, Jesus told his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus teaches this. He creates this community with his disciples, a wholehearted community. And then he goes to the cross, and he, he makes this possible by his death and his resurrection. I find it so fascinating, the language of the author of Hebrews, is he tells, he's instructing a community how to love one another, how to live out this kingdom life. He says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the author, and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, and listen to this, despising the shame. So we see the story come full circle from Genesis, the beginning of shame, and and how that evil one uses that to unleash sin in the world, to now Jesus coming to heal us from our shame, despising its shame, disregarding its shame. He dies And he rises again, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And that becomes the power for how we live into the wholeness that God has for us. And this is God's vision for his church. We have a whole God who exists as an eternal community of love, creating wholehearted people, restoring wholehearted people back to his image, who then go on to create wholehearted communities, who set off and unleash God's power and his presence in the world, right? This is what um, 1 John, one of Jesus' disciples, says about this kind of love. He says, beloved, I love that, beloved. You, the church, are God's beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected. That's the same word for wholeness. It's made whole in us. Essentially what the writers of the New Testament are saying is you have been made whole by faith in Jesus. Now become who you are by the power of the Spirit at work in you. Let the love of God 
increasingly permeate and integrate your identity, who you are, your story, your body, your feelings, your thoughts, your imagination, your behavior, your relationships. All of these things need to be pulled back together. They're scattered. They're divided because of shame and because of sin and because of fear. But God wants to pull these things back together and teach us what it looks like to live from a wholehearted place. Let me give you a simple definition that we'll use throughout the series for wholeheartedness. Um, because that's a word that's being thrown around a lot, wholeness and wholeheartedness. And some people mean something completely different than what I mean by this. Let me just define this, I think, biblically. Wholeheartedness is the capacity to enjoy trusting, connected, vulnerable, compassionate, self-giving relationships with God, with other people, and even with ourselves. It flows from the wholeness of our loving union and communion with the triune God and is incomplete apart from real embodied relationships where we can practice being known and loved. Its opposite is an impaired capacity. So when we're not walking in wholeheartedness, we see it, it shows up as an impaired capacity to love others for loving relationships, characterized by mistrusting, disconnected, defensive, divided, and self-fulfilling patterns of relating to God, others, and self. What Uh, the disciple John is inviting us to see is that our relationships with others, our ability to love, to know, to be loved, and to be known are a gauge for our love with God, right? And so we need the love of God in order to love well. But if we're not loving well, like if we're walking in unforgiveness, if we're refusing to forgive, if we're walking in bitterness, if we're not being generous towards those in need, uh, John would say, check your heart. You may, you may not be a Christian. You may not be walking in loving communion with God because the true sign of that, he says, the way that we know and the way the world knows that we're walking in wholeheartedness is that we're learning to love one another well. And, and I know for myself, and I'm sure it's true for you, this process is not easy. And it is not automatic, right? Evil is being contested in our bodies, in our relationships. As Christ comes in and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us, the Bible compares that process to like an oppressive regime being ousted and and us learning to live under the new policies and laws and rhythms of God's administration, God's new kingdom of love. And it is a painful, painful process. Evil does not go down easily, right? We said this with the Exodus series. Egypt, just because we leave Egypt doesn't mean Egypt has left us. And so it's a long, lifelong process. We still experience battles with division and disconnection and deception, our old way of life, our old patterns. And we have to learn how to replace those old patterns with new patterns of love and vulnerability. And the Apostle Paul says, man, like, it is so hard. Romans 7 and 8, he says, I I don't know what I do. I want to do this, but I actually do this. And so we're going to be teaching for the rest of the year, let me just kind of lay this out as a community, on the skills of wholeheartedness, because we know we have to learn these things. They don't happen magically or automatically. We have to practice our way into these things by the power of the Spirit in the context of community. And so we're going to be teaching the basic skills and working on these skills together as a community. I realize many of you and your families were not taught this. This was not modeled. Or even in the church, like the church can be such a place of shame and fear and can be just as divided as the rest of the world And so we want to lean into some of these skills that the Bible talks about that are critical for growing in wholeheartedness. And I want to fill these up on the screen and just have you look at these because um, I I hope that God is inviting you to grow in some of these areas. So we're going to be talking about these skills and working on these skills both internally, which is where most of the battle happens, but then also externally in uh, actual relationship with each other in the context of community. 
And then we're also going to be talking about this. In, so we'll spend the fall looking at Philippians and looking at some of these things. Uh, and, then, and then come winter and spring, we'll actually talk about what does it look like to practice these in the different contexts, relational spheres that God has placed us. What does this look like in singleness? What does this look like in marriage? What does this look like in a parent-child relationship? What does this look like in male-female relationships, in our sexuality and how we experience our bodies in that way? What does this look like in multicultural and multi-ethnic? These are all the relationships that the Bible addresses. And so I want to encourage you as we close, um, this is a daunting process. I know emotionally some of you right now are like, I would rather leave than stay and do this work. It is so hard. My best piece of pastoral wisdom is just to encourage you to stay, to encourage you to commit yourself to the process. God is after your wholeness, and your wholeness cannot happen unless you are committed to a real flesh and blood group of people with all of their imperfections, all of their flaws, all of your imperfections, and all of your flaws. And I know how hard it is to stay, right? I know how easy it is to just get hurt and want to move on or feel restless and want to move on to another community, or we get it, you know, kind of in our imagination that happiness and joy are somewhere else other than with this group of people right here and right now. But the reality is actually the opposite, right? Study after study shows that happiness and well-being are highly correlated with rooting down and finding stability in community. We cannot answer, who am I, without asking the question also, where am I and to whom am I giving myself. And stability of relationships is essential for stability of the heart. And it requires stability of the heart to experience stability in your relationships. During my sabbatical, I had the opportunity to visit uh, a Benedictine monastic community. And, uh, and they followed this ancient communal practice of taking what they called a vow of stability. A, a novice would come and they would knock on the door and they would come you know, for months and knock on the door to get into this community. And it took a year-long process of them being welcomed or they would finally stand before this community after all kinds of training and, and kind of preparation work. And they would stand before this community and they would take what they call a vow of stability. I am here. I am not going anywhere. And what we appreciate about the beauty of a monastic community, it's not a perfect place, certainly sin and shame and all of that happens in the context of you know, monastic cloisters. But the reality is we do not get the benefits and the fruit of all of that stability without the commitment of saying, I am here and I'm not going anywhere. God's vision for us is nothing short of wholeness. And that wholeness requires us to stay, to commit ourselves to doing this work together in community. And God's promise is that we, as we live into these vulnerable and joyful and yet painful and wholehearted relationships, we are actually becoming more real. We are actually becoming our true selves in Christ instead of these false reactive selves, these personas that we put on these masks that we wear. And, and so let me just close with a few quotes from some people who've found this to be true. One from an ancient church father um, in, in Africa a long time ago. And then uh, one from a children's story that I'm sure you've read many times. Uh, St. Augustine says this, Seek for yourself, O man. Search for your true self. He who seeks shall find. But marvel and joy, he will not find himself. He will find God. Or if he find himself, he will find himself in God. The Velveteen Rabbit in his conversation with the skin horse likewise says something similar that is profoundly true and I think totally aligned with what uh, Jesus came to bring to us in terms of wholehearted community. Um, Here's the conversation from the skin horse. Real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. 
when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or who have sharp edges who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to the people who don't understand. Love creates the context for growth, vulnerability, to be known and to be loved is our greatest desire and yet our greatest fear. Jesus invites us to experience this reality in the church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this invitation to grow and to become wholehearted, to become people who love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, who love our neighbors, ourselves. God, help us in the midst of pain, in the midst of the brokenness that we experience in our families, in our community of faith, to stay, to root ourselves down, and to stay and to work through this process of transformation, knowing that you have designed it to lead to our wholeness in Christ. God, give us strength, give us wisdom in how to do that, but God, give us courage to step towards that with great vulnerability this year. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.